In 58 AD, the Christian church in Rome found itself deeply divided between her Jewish and Gentile members. To help guide the church towards unity, St. Paul wrote the longest of his 13 letters to God's beloved in Rome. You could argue that Paul's lengthiest letter was the most important letter ever written. Not just by Paul, by anyone, ever. The most prolific of New Testament authors, the second most influential character in the Christian tradition, an anti-Jesus zealot and Pharisee who changed course on the road to Damascus to become a primary architect of the Christian faith. He wrote a letter to the fledgling church that would help define her beliefs early on and continues to help define who we are as Jesus' people today. It's a profoundly historical book written out of a deep personal understanding of and relationship with God. Romans, the most important letter ever written. Hey friends, open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If you're not in a place where you have access to a traditional Bible, you can take your digital device and you can open up the U version, or it's also called the Bible app, and all the notes and scriptures, they've already been uploaded, and we're also going to put the scriptures up on the screen. So wherever it is that you're watching us from, I love you. Thank you for being a part of our family. And just a reminder, if you want additional content or if you want to ask me questions about this message, you can get on a Zoom call. And for about an hour, we're going to do a program called Ask the Pastor. It's at 8 o'clock on Tuesday night. All you have to do is RSVP on our website. Today, though, let's continue a teaching that I started two weeks ago that we've been calling When. Let's pray. God, we love you. We honor you. Thank you for who you are. I pray that you would make this word become alive in us, that we would be changed, be less like us and more like you. In Jesus' name, amen. So when we left off last week, Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark were approaching the harbor near a walled city called Perga. They were facing the thought of crossing a steep mountainous pass into the unreached inland Roman region of Galatia. And in the midst of the challenges that lay ahead, John Mark gives up, he returns to Jerusalem, and Paul and Barnabas are left to continue the mission alone. As they came ashore and trekked up the initial steps of what would certainly be an unforgiving journey, they entered one of the few regions within the Roman Empire that hadn't been fully tamed. They set out across the plains where the dust rose in stifling clouds, the heat, it hit back, radiating from the gray rock and perspiration, sweat poured off the travelers, young and old alike. These roads, they weren't patrolled by Roman authorities, which left bandits and wild tribesmen to make short work of any lone travelers. In fact, many of the people crazy enough to venture down this path had never been heard from again. And so if Paul and Barnabas had any chance of survival, they'd they'd have to join a caravan. And so the journey, it was slow. The heat the sudden drenching storms that flooded the gullies, the cold so bitter at night that limbs became stiff and old scars complained and the constant danger of sudden attack made this first journey the toughest that Paul would complete. As they neared the summit, they finally crossed into the great Galatian province. Cascading into the more settled highland country, the caravan, it dispersed, and and Paul and Barnabas, they continued alone. 
Shortly after their, their split from the crowd, they came upon Lake Limni, one of the most beautiful bodies of water in the entire world. It was known for its extraordinary turquoise waters. With snow-capped mountains to their left and Mount Olympus on the horizon, they spent three days pushing as hard as they could, desperate to reach their destination before Sabbath. Exhausted, they they crossed one final low pass and saw, dwarfed by its mountainous backdrop, the city of Pisidian Antioch in the region called Phrygia. An outpost established by Emperor Augustus as a Roman colony to maintain peace in the hills, it, it still had a frontier air to it. It was similar to our Wild West. Only a few of the toughest soldiers planted by Augustus remained, but they were the aristocracy and they forced the native Phrygians into hard labor and they exported them as slaves across the entire empire. Paul and Barnabas, they climbed the steps into the city through these magnificent arches that commemorated Augustus' victories both on land and by sea and they marveled at the white marble temple where the emperor was worshipped as God on earth. The city, it had its share of Jews, and because of their great wealth and their great industriousness, they, they gained favor with the Romans in spite of the fact that they disrupted the local economy by, by stopping work one day of every week. It was on one of those days, on their first Sabbath morning in town, that Paul and Barnabas entered the synagogue and sat in the seats designated for visiting rabbis. At the invitation of the leader of the synagogue, Paul stood up to speak. He noticed immediately that in addition to Jews and local converts to Judaism, that crowd also included a number of pagans, people also known as God-fearers. With a gesture that stilled the murmur of anticipation, Paul caught the attention of the entire crowd with an unusual opening when he said, Men of Israel... And you God-fearers, listen. Instantly, the people were dialed in. They were captured. They were hearing Paul with complete attention. Slowly, he continued. God has brought to us a Savior, just as he promised. Jesus. Still, they listened. For the first time in a synagogue, Paul had sympathetic audience attention. He went on, men and brothers, sons of the race of Abraham and all among you who fear God, it is to us that this message of salvation has now been sent for the people of Jerusalem and their rulers. They refuse to recognize them and to understand the voice of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath day. Even though they found no cause for putting him to death, they begged Pilate to have him executed. And he let the enormity of what Jesus had done sink into their minds. Then in ringing tones, Paul proclaimed his amazing good news. But God, he raised him from the dead. He then swept away the barrier between Jew and Gentile and included every person present in God's offer of free forgiveness when he said these words. Know therefore, brothers... And that's a sentence that seems meaningless to us now, but, but these pagan God-fearers, they had never been called brothers before. 
In fact, the Apostle John warned so strongly against this that he says calling non-believers brothers makes you a co-conspirator in their sinful lifestyle. But Paul lived by the belief system that darkness cannot overtake light, but rather the opposite. So he urged the need for personal repentance and faith in Jesus. And with that, he ended his message. He'd said everything that needed to be said. And as they left the synagogue, the congregation crowded around and begged for more the next Sabbath. All that day and during the week, the apostles, they were busy with individuals and groups as they urged them to hold fast to the grace of God. And the news, it spread like wildfire. The word, it spread that these traveling preachers had a message that actually made sense of life. And so on the next Sabbath, when Paul and Barnabas reached the synagogue, they found an enormous crowd. And the Gentiles, they actually greatly outnumbered the Jews. Every seat was filled. But in the synagogue, the service would never begin. Instead of warmly welcoming the largest congregation of their time, the rabbi, elders, and the leading Jews, they were furious. They resented the response to Paul's message. And, and Paul wasn't surprised, but he also wasn't going to be silenced. So the apostles stood up boldly and they answered back, It was necessary that the word of God should be declared to you first. But since you rejected it and thus condemned yourselves as unworthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles, for these are our instructions from the Lord. And with that, the apostles exited the synagogue, walked to the town square, and to a giant group of Galatian Gentiles, Paul preached and people were changed. But before he could revel in that success, Paul fell ill. He contracted a mysterious sickness. He was forced to stop. For several weeks of summer, Paul laid quarantined. But his new converts, they wouldn't be stopped. The gospel continued to be spread. The revolutionary message of grace and faith in Jesus leapt from person to person like a divine epidemic. And it caused Paul to adopt the strategy by which he'd spread Jesus from that point forward. They would settle in a city center. They would reach that region through its own converts. In a matter of weeks, a new norm had begun. A flourishing, expanding church had sprung up, and not just in one central location or on one particular day. In small pockets of people, in homes and in courtyards, at places of business, anywhere where two or more could gather. And Paul and Barnabas, they wanted to stay until they were sure that the church could stand on its own. But after about two months in the city, a storm of conflict erupted around them. The Jews who had refused to believe in Jesus as their Messiah rallied the Roman aristocracy against them and had them thrown in jail, which in that region was always accompanied by physical punishment. Now, because Paul was a Roman citizen, he could have avoided the beating, but because Barnabas wasn't a Roman citizen, he, he'd not only be forced to receive the full force of the law, he'd likely also receive Paul's avoided portion just to send a message. But Paul, he had no intention of escaping what Barnabas had to endure, so he said nothing about his citizenship. So the next morning, the apostles were crammed into a cage and dragged to the city center. And first Paul, then Barnabas, were brutally beaten. 
pulled across the waist-high whipping pillar. Their clothes were torn off them and thrown in a heap. Naked, they were bent over the pillar and tied to a tether to maximize the tightness of their skin. The Punisher, he drew birch rods from his collection of weapons and he beat them until he was exhausted. And they were a crumpled, crippled, bloody mess. They were then draped in their dusty, dirty, discarded, torn-up clothes, dragged to the boundary of town and thrown out in the dirt to crawl away. Their converts were stunned and scattered. Among those converts who witnessed the beating were an elderly Jewish woman named Lois, her daughter Eunice, and Eunice's son Timothy. They were citizens of Lystra, the next Roman colony, about 130 miles to the east. They immediately traveled home and they took the apostles with them. And on the seventh day of their journey, the road forked. And the women, they took the road to the right and continued home to Lystra, while Timothy stayed with the apostles who took the road to the left into the ancient city of Iconium. They entered unheralded and unnoticed. But Paul, he took the first opportunity to preach in the synagogue. And as in Antioch, the effect was phenomenal. A large number of Jews and Greeks believed. But again, the Jews who, ref who refused to believe that their promised Messiah could be Jesus counteracted immediately and they stirred up the Gentiles. They poisoned their minds against the Christians. Tension rose and the city split between those who followed the apostles and those who hated them. And Paul was frequently manhandled in the streets and a plan was launched for them to be put to death by stoning. And so Paul and Barnabas, they decided to flee. Their next move was obvious to them. With Timothy as their guide, they'd go to his hometown of Lystra. Running for their lives, they covered 25 miles in a day. And as they entered the city in the glow of early evening light, they saw the temple of Zeus, which would soon become the cause of one of the most terrifying episodes in all of Paul's life. There was no Jewish synagogue in Lystra, so Paul made it a practice of preaching in the public square. But for the first time, few listened and almost no one believed until an extraordinary incident occurred. One day, while Paul was speaking, he noticed a man who the locals knew had never walked. Paul had seen this man many times before, but on this day, during this message, he noticed something different in this lame man's face. He immediately stopped preaching. Paul knew without a doubt what he noticed in that man's eyes was the unmistakable look of faith. Paul knew that the man knew he could be healed. So without fear or hesitation, Paul shouted, stand up on your feet. Instantly, the man jumped up and walked. The effect on the crowd obviously was electric. Some of the young men, they pushed out of the forum and they ran in the direction of the temple of Zeus because in Lystra's legendary past, as every child had learned, the supreme god Zeus and his messenger Hermes had disguised themselves as poor travelers and sought shelter among the Lyconians, but they had been denied. And so the people of Lystra, they had always looked for the day when the two gods would return, but this time be treated with honor. And with this miracle, it all fit. And so the chief priest of Zeus hurriedly brought a sacrificial oxen. He seized his knife and with trumpet blasts proceeded toward the city, 
Crowds were already collecting. The Lyconians chanted and danced, shouted and surrounded the puzzled Paul and Barnabas. A procession was formed, and as the people bowed with reverence, the apostles were swept up the street toward the gate. It was only then that the apostles realized what the people were shouting. The gods have come down to us in human form. A sacrifice was about to be offered in their honor. The apostles were horrified, and instinctively they tore their clothes, the Jewish reaction to blasphemy. They rushed up the street to implore the priest to stop. Paul climbed onto the sacrificial stone and he yelled, Men, what is this that you're doing? We're only human beings. We're no less mortal than you. But just then, strangers came on the scene. Jews recognized by Paul as antagonists from Pisidian Antioch and Iconium, probably trading in Lystra. These Jews, they instigated the crowd and the mood changed from worship to fury. Suddenly and unexpectedly, a young man picked up a stone, took aim, and with a vicious flick, he caught Paul full face. In a moment before Barnabas or his friends could protect him, Paul was under a shower of stones. He fell stark and stiff, blood streaming from his nose and eyes. The crowd, they dragged his body up out of the city and they left him for dead. A few sympathizers helped him up. They dabbed and dressed his wounds. And while every bone in his body cried out for rest, Paul set off with Barnabas. They found shelter in Derby, the next town over. And that winter, Paul recovered, and the Bible says he made many disciples. And as the snow melted in the plains and the winds dropped, the apostles left Derby and made the journey back to Antioch in Syria. It was 48 A.D. As soon as they arrived, the Christian converts, they crowded into the open-air atrium. They were anxious to hear Paul and Barnabas tell the story of their mission. The journey, it had been long. In 60 days consumed by travel, they'd covered over a thousand miles on foot. And so Paul and Barnabas, they settled in and retook their places as the preachers and the pastors of the Antioch church. Then Peter visited the city. It was the only place in the world where ex-pagans were living in complete equality with Christian Jews. And everyone watched what Peter would do. Would he treat them as equals or would he treat them as outsiders? To everyone's surprise, he treated them with total equality, including spending time in their homes and eating meals with them as brothers. But all that quickly changed a few weeks later when a group of Christian Pharisees showed up in town and freaked out at how Peter had become a sellout. Not only was he eating with Gentiles, but he wasn't requiring them to live in full accordance to the law of Moses. And at once they began a campaign that said, unless you submit to the full law of Moses and convert to Judaism, you could not be saved. And everyone involved in the dispute knew what they meant. They meant that the death and resurrection of Jesus wasn't enough to gain a man access to heaven. That had to be earned. And they argued their case so passionately and convincingly that Peter caved and he cordoned himself off from the Gentiles. And most of the Jewish members of the congregation, they followed his example, including Barnabas. 
Paul, he was indignant. It was an attack on everything that he'd been teaching. So in front of the entire congregation, Paul confronted Peter and he said, if you, although you're a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you try to force these Gentiles who were born as Gentiles to live like Jews? Knowing that Paul was right, Peter shrunk under the scrutiny and he returned to Jerusalem. Shortly thereafter, Paul and Barnabas followed where they would stand before the Jerusalem council and defend their teachings of salvation by faith through grace. And with the memory of Paul's correction fresh in his mind, Peter would stand and testify at the trial to the truth of Paul's teachings. Paul and Barnabas, they would win the day an edict would be issued that Gentiles could be fully recognized as followers of Jesus without converting to Judaism, which incidentally would open the door for those of us watching this today to be able to have a personal relationship with Jesus. So basking in the afterglow of this monumental victory, Paul and Barnabas decided to go back and tell the good news to all the churches that they had started. And the mood was joyous until Barnabas suggested they bring John Mark back with them. And this is where Paul and Barnabas have such a heated confrontation that they part ways and never speak again. I mean, Paul had been burned. John Mark had burned him when he abandoned them. And Paul, he was obviously carrying a grudge. And I wonder if Paul actually argued like some of us. I, I wonder if he was the kind of guy to bring up the past. Uh, I wonder if he brought up how Barnabas had let John Mark go without a fight or if, or if he had brought up how Barnabas had caved when Peter and the other believers caved to the Christian Pharisees when they had come to Antioch. Like, I, I wonder if Barnabas then brought up the fact that Paul wouldn't be who he was if Barnabas hadn't endorsed him all those years ago and that if Paul then responded with, yeah, you put your name on me, but I took a beating for you at Pisidian Antioch because unlike you, bro, I'm loyal. To which I wonder if Barnabas then said, yeah, bro, you may be loyal, but you're not loving. You never have been. That's how you could capture and kill people in the name of God. And then I wonder if Barnabas, whose name means son of encouragement and, and who really was the king of second chances, pushed on and said, you know what, Paul? I was just trying to encourage Peter and Antioch, and I'm, I'm just trying to encourage John Mark now, just like I've been trying to encourage you all these years in all your melancholy, morose moodiness, which, by the way, has been exhausting. And it was all that Barnabas could take, and so he left. And now Paul, who had been burned, has just burned a bridge with his friend Barnabas, and a beautiful relationship was ruined, and they went their separate ways, Barnabas with John Mark and later Paul with Silas, all because they wouldn't stop keeping track. And I don't think Paul ever really got over this. In fact, years later, he'd write in his second letter to the Corinthians that because God had reconciled us to himself, we are called to a ministry of reconciliation. And he wrote this letter because the Corinthians were being plagued by division and arguments. And he wrote it just a year before he wrote the book of Romans, shortly after being released from prison in Ephesus, in a season where he was forced to stop, in a season where he was isolated and locked down. You know, there's a lot that can be learned when your life has been disrupted. A lot that can be learned when you've been isolated and are forced to stop. 
And I wonder if when Paul thought about the division and the arguments among the Corinthians, if he remembered what those, what those things had done in his own life. In the time when he'd been burned, but refused to stop keeping track, when he refused to forgive and how that refusal to forgive had caused him to burn someone that he loved. And it makes me wonder two things today. Who's burned you? And who have you burned? Who's burned you? And who have you burned? Where have you refused to stop keeping track? See, I wonder what if you took this time of isolation and you used it to your benefit? What if you decided to stop keeping track? What if you decided to rebuild some of the bridges that you've burned in your life? Gosh, I hope you will. Because brothers, beyond a shadow of a doubt, you and I, we are called to the ministry of reconciliation. Will you close your eyes? Reconciliation. Do you need it today? Do you need to give it? Or do you need to receive it? See, I wonder today, if you're watching this, if while I talked about that, if while I talked about the argument between Paul and Barnabas, if you remembered an argument between yourself. You see, I used to be a really good arguer. I used to be a guy that prided himself in the fact that I would not lose a debate. And I would use whatever words, I would use whatever memories, I would drag up whatever filth and ugliness I had to, I would level insults, I would call names, because I knew that my words could win a fight. You know what, I went through counseling and I discovered that no one really wins a fight. Nobody wins an argument. I don't think Paul or Barnabas won that argument. I think they both lost. And I think because they both lost, ultimately some of us lost out on some of the benefits of what their continued partnership could have continued. And I wonder what partnership you have in your life that is losing out, that people are missing out on because you refuse to stop keeping track. And so here's what I want to do today. Before we ever start talking about salvation, before we ever start talking about people committing their lives to Jesus, I wanna talk to those of you today who are broken by broken relationships and tell you that today is the day. Today is the day to rebuild bridges and mend broken relationships. So if that's you, I want to pray for you today. God, for my friends who are on this, I pray reconciliation. I pray a breaking of our heart. I pray a breaking of our spirits. I pray a breaking of our wills, God, that we will become people who will be reunited, who will be restored, who will be reconciled one to another. God, I, I thank you for stories that we're going to hear because of this message of relationships that were renewed when people slowed down and determined to change who they were. In Jesus' name, amen. God, maybe you're watching this. You say, you know what? Yes, I have broken relationships. Yes, there are things that I need to mend. But before you can really mend some of those relationships, you've got to mend your relationship with God. That's what salvation is. Salvation is a reconciliation with God where you and God at some point parted ways. And can you tell you that he wasn't the one who left, you were. And so today, we're gonna give you an opportunity to be reconciled to God, to receive him as your personal Lord and Savior. And here's how we're gonna do that. In just a minute, I'm gonna say a few lines in a prayer, and then I'm gonna pause. 
And I'm going to pause because that's going to give you an opportunity to repeat those lines. And scripture says, if you repeat those lines and you mean them in your heart, you will be saved. So if you need to receive Jesus today as your personal Lord and Savior and be reconciled to God, will you repeat this after me? Will you say, Jesus, I'm a sinner, but I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? Will you change me? Will you come into my heart? Can we be reconciled? Will you be my Lord and will you be my Savior? In Jesus' name, amen. Friend, if you prayed that prayer, I'm so proud of you. I'm so excited for you and I want the opportunity to connect with you. So if you'll click that button that says you're raising your hand to indicate that you're choosing Jesus, we want the opportunity to pray with and for you. I love you. I'm so excited about what God's doing in your life. Will you worship with us?